when we were driving to and from Texas on vacation um, this month, uh, one of the things I noticed driving a long time on Interstate 10 and then Interstate 20 is how many drivers are doing things other than driving um, when they're behind the wheel. Uh, with the smartphone now, there's all kinds of people reading and texting and taking photos and playing games and and I don't know what all they're doing, and, and, but you, you just pull up next to them, and you, you kind of can tell from behind that something's going on, and then you pull up and pass them, you know, you make your move and try to get by them before they run you off the road, and you look over, and sure enough, they've got the phone, and they're doing this, and, and I don't know that they realize how long their eyes are off the road for, that's one of the things that fascinates me, I think they probably think it's quick, but it's, you know, five, seven seconds at times when they're, they take their eyes off the road, but it, it's it's definitely a problem now. But beyond distracted driving, now we see another issue, and you may have been reading about this week, and it's distracted walking. Um, this new game, Pokemon Go, which is all the rage uh, right now, and, and people playing this game on, on their smartphones. I'm sure, JK, you've got this game on your phone, correct? Yeah, I'm sure, yeah. All right, yeah. I don't think they have the flip phone version of the app yet, so... Um, but, <coughs> I mean, the major news stories this week are, are, are the, you know, the Russian the religious liberty, which is something we need to pray for, our brothers and sisters in Russia. And there's major, major law that was signed restricting liberty there, religious freedom and, and, and the missionary activity there in Russia. There are terror attacks, obviously, in Nice, France, and, and the uh, turmoil in Turkey. And then we're reading about, you know, Pikachu. Uh, if you don't know who that is, that's okay. But this is one of the little Pokemon characters. And so there are, they, this is just blown up though. There are more Pokemon Go users now than Twitter users. Now some of you are like, what's Twitter? But just if you don't, <laughs> it's big. A lot of people. This, just trust me. And, and it's only been out a month. But if you've noticed, if you've been driving around or walking around and you notice people walking down sidewalks or, or, or I know we've seen it around like the Fayette County Courthouse and they've got their phones and they're doing this thing, then, then that, you've seen it. You just don't know what you're looking at. So, uh, that's, that's this Pokemon Go. We were sitting at Oz Pizza yesterday, uh, in Fayette County on the square there and yeah, about every five minutes there'd be another individual or group of people walking around over there. Uh, sing it. There's actually one on our campus, I've been told. So a little digital virtual monster. So just watch out for him. Um, <coughs> but but I, the, the, I guess it has it has appeal and and uh, you know at least it's getting people out off the couch in the daylight and they're walking around and they're doing it with people generally. But it's led to all kinds of problems because there are, it's a distraction. It's one more distraction that people have. And so there have been all, all kinds of stories even this last week and, and car accidents, people running off the road playing this game while, while driving and guy ran into a tree and, and, uh, people walking, just walking out into traffic. And there was a kid that got run over playing this game just because he's, Looking at his phone, someone was bit by a venomous, venomous snake in Texas because he wasn't paying attention and just walked right on top of, I'm guessing, a rattlesnake and, and was, was bit by this. But the wildest one was outside of San Diego, California. There were two guys in their early 20s. They were playing the game and they fell off a cliff. They walked right off of a cliff. 50, one of them fell 50 feet down, another fell 90 feet down tumbled down this cliff. They both survived. 
I don't know if they caught the little Pokemon or not, but they, they had a brush with death. And, and, um, so, so it's this, this distracted, distracted walkers, distracted drivers. And what we're saying is, is there, we're, we're all selective seers. You're not seeing everything at the same time. If you're in a, if I'm in a conversation with you, if I'm, if I have courtesy, I'm looking at you, I'm looking at your eyes when you're talking to me. There's all kinds of stuff going on around you and behind you, but I'm not focused on those things. I'm choosing to look at you. I'm, we're, we're always selective in what we see. And, and, and this is what, you know, leads to, if you're, if you're selecting, if you're choosing to look at the wrong things and focus on the wrong things, and for too long, then this is what leads to these problems. Well, John 9, this is a segue, it's all about seeing. It's all about seeing, undistracted seeing. John's whole gospel is about seeing. Remember the very purpose of John's gospel. We've been out for a few weeks, so let me just remind you, it's in John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, and we don't have to wonder why John wrote these chapters, and the gospel that we find is the gospel of John. He wrote them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he wrote these things so that we would see Jesus, and, and seeing Him will believe Him, and believing will have life in His name. But John 20, verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs, many other, we'll talk about signs in a moment, those are, those are observable Miracle signs that Jesus did that could be seen. He did many of these in the presence of His disciples. And there were so many, they, they weren't written in the book. And, and, but, it, but He says, these, the ones that He's recorded, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So He, he wants us to see Jesus, to really see Him for who He is undistractedly see Him. And seeing Him will we'll put our trust in Him, our confidence in Him that He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And if we believe in Him, we'll have this new, eternal, abundant life in Jesus. That's what John was writing. He wants us, and it all starts with seeing Him. And so John 9 is all about seeing. I mean, most obviously, it's about a blind man who receives Sight, so that's clear. But at the end of the chapter, Jesus is going to say that there are many, like the Pharisees, who say they see and who, who seem to have all their act together, but He says they're blind. Not all those who appear to see can, can really see spiritually. And we'll notice that Jesus sees differently than the disciples see here. He, he, he focuses on different things than they do. His selective seeing is different than theirs. And so the healing of this blind man, just in the, again, in the structure of John, it marks the sixth of the seven signs that John records for us. Those signs that he's written so that we'll believe in Jesus. This is the sixth of those signs. They make up the backbone of his gospel account. And, and it's, um, and, and, and to, what a sign is, it's, it's a it's a it's a miracle, but it's a miracle with a particular purpose. All signs are miracles, but not all miracles are signs. A sign is this miracle that carries a deeper meaning than the than the immediate benefit to the one who receives the miracle and the blessing of the miracle. So it, it has this enduring message that goes on, on on and on and on, even to us today. There's something that's being communicated. Through the miracle. That's what a sign is. And that's what John has recorded for us. So in the context of John. We can see clearly what the message of this sixth sign is. 
It's connected with Jesus' statement back in John chapter 8 where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. <coughs> and then he follows with this episode and he's going to repeat that as we read in verse in, in chapter 9. But, but in chapter 8 you see the light of the world is being rejected by those who are in darkness. And, and yet Jesus is proving his light because he brings light to this man who's living in darkness. And this is what we'll see in chapter 9. So, so this is... A story about one man whose life has been changed by... I have one. Thank you, Ken. I appreciate it, brother. Uh, whose life has been changed by Jesus. So it's that. But it's much more than that. Don't just read, this is a neat little story. One guy whose life was changed. No, this, this is a scene that's loaded with meaning for us. And we'll see that this man becomes a picture of, of really lost humanity. The whole world without Christ. And, and it points to the healing work... The, the saving work that Jesus does as represented by His healing of this blind man. So just four, four kind of hooks for us this morning to, to capture what's being communicated here. The first thing that we'll see here is that the problem is serious. The problem is serious. Verse 1, as He passed by, as Jesus passed by, He saw, there you go, There we're going to see this language throughout John, but He saw a man blind from birth. So he's leaving the temple. Remember the Feast of Tabernacles and, and, and the, the, this festival of lights is part of it and all these torches and that's where he makes this statement, I am the light of the world. And, but he's leaving the temple now and he's probably passing through a gate which is where the beggars would, would sit because all the people are funneling through there and you get the, you, 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 all the people are going to pass through there. So, so the beggars are there and he's passing through the gate and, and, and he sees a man who's only known blindness. Congenital blindness. Blindness from birth. A condition that he had at or before birth even. So he's never seen anything. Now you just try to imagine what that would be like. I mean, maybe some of you have family members or friends who, who have been blind from birth. I, I would just challenge, just, just work with a little illustration. Just close your eyes for a moment. I'm not going to play any tricks on you. I'm not going to throw anything at you. Close your eyes just for a moment. And, but as you do, can you picture what the room looks like with your eyes closed? You can kind of, can you picture the stage here? Can you picture the color of the chairs and these beautiful, the lighting in here and the sunlight streaming in through the windows and, can, and, and the people's faces that are sitting around you? You know who's around you. Can you picture their faces? All right, you can open your eyes. Could you, could you picture those things? Of course you could. Because you have memories, you have memories of sight, you have these past experiences of seeing these things, and very recent experiences of seeing them just a few seconds earlier. But, but this man has never seen, has never seen, he has no memories, he has no past sight experiences to rely upon. He, he doesn't know what a color is. He doesn't, he's never seen a facial expression. He, he, he has no category for looking up in the sky and, and what's up there and what is it and what's the wind like and what, a, what does it look like to see trees blowing and all those kinds of things and sun and clouds and all that. It's just, he has no category for that. Never seen anything. I've, I've, I've wondered, I was thinking about this week and I was just reading actually some accounts of people, blind people trying to explain what this is like. And, 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 and one of the things that I was thinking about, what would be worse to be 
born blind where you never see anything or to have to lose your sight, to have sight and then to lose it. I know this is a reality. Some of you are, are faced with it, that you're, you've lost a, a tremendous amount of your eyesight and, and, and there is the real possibility of losing more or even losing all of it. And we pray for you often. And, and so I, I know that's a, a fear and that's a reality of some in our own congregation. I was, I was talking with one of the uh, elders at East Point Church, a sister church that we are close with. I had spoke at their men's retreat this spring and, and I rode with one of the elders out to the retreat and I hadn't seen him in over a year. Well, he's had quite a year because he's in his early 50s, uh, you know, working, had good career, you know, kids and college age, that kind of thing. Well, he's he's lost most of his eyesight just in the last year, and 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 through injury and then some other infections and other things, and it's probably not going to be able to recover any of it, and it's only getting worse. And so he's unable to work now. He's unable to drive. He has very little freedom now. He's he's more and more dependent upon people for everything. And and I talked with him and I just my heart just was aching for him. Because he's he's so full of he had been so full of life and I mean he still is, but he talked I, I was asking him questions, he talked about just the progression of just fear and then anger and, and this sense of loss and hopelessness and, and yet God has worked in his life and he's brought hope and and confidence in the Lord and contentment in Him and joy now again in Him and thankfulness to God. But, but it's, it's, a, it's been a hard struggle for Him. I, I, I say all that. I just, just want you to get a sense of the, the seriousness of this man's condition. I know you understand, okay, you're blind. That would be bad. But this, this, this is a man who's always been blind. This was a hard, hard life. I mean, it's hard for blind people today but in that day, it was far more difficult. We didn't have organizations that were working to make it easier for those who, with the visually impaired, to to function and to live. And and so this was this was there was not there were not helps, and the culture wasn't very sympathetic, because because their assumption was, uh, and this is what we'll see in the disciples' question here in verse two is, because everybody around this blind beggar knew that he was blind because of sin. There was, there was that assumption about his condition. The rabbinical teaching in Jesus' day was this. This is, this is what the rabbis taught. That there is no death without sin, no punishment without guilt, and no suffering without iniquity. And so the Jews were steeped in this teaching, as were the disciples. So, verse 2. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, it seems that they're really close to this blind man when they ask this question. I mean, just the way the account. And I know blind people tend to have heightened, other, other senses are heightened. So he probably heard them ask this question, which to me just sounds kind of cruel. Um, but, they, but they're asking this question. And behind their question, though, is that common view that, that there is this, oh, there's always this direct correlation between sin and suffering. There, there's, there's this mathematical proportionate ratio. The, the degree to which you're suffering is, is coordinate, coordinates and corresponds to the degree to which you've sinned. This is how, this was common thought. And this is, this goes way back, goes back to Job, the first book written in the Bible. 
The oldest book in the Bible. His friends thought this way. If you're suffering, Job, it's because you've sinned. So repent. Don't don't (coughs) admit it. And since you're the most afflicted man in the land, the most afflicted, suffering man we've ever known, you must be the worst sinner in the land. They just they go together. Now, it is true that all suffering is because of sin. In the sense that it's, it's all the result of the fall. All goes back to Adam and Eve's sin. And so that's why there is suffering and pain and disease and, and loss in the world. And it's also true that sometimes there is a direct correlation between sin and particular suffering. We see this in scripture. We, and, and so, and so you have David and Bathsheba's sin and they, their baby dies. You have Miriam's sin and she has leprosy. And the Lord makes it very clear that it wasn't the devil who gave her leprosy, but God struck her. It was part of his discipline of her. And there's lots of other examples in Scripture. So there are times when God disciplines his people by giving them affliction and judges his enemies by, by affliction. <coughs> so we, we shouldn't say to someone, this can't be the hand of God. You don't know. But you also, we also cannot rush to judgment and say there is this one-to-one connection between a person's suffering and their sin as saying it's directly a result of God's judgment or discipline on their life. Don't, don't do that. Because there are all kinds of other reasons which we are sometimes subjected to tremendous suffering. And so, so this is what the disciples are grasping. This is the assumption they make. It's, it's either or. Which one is it? Is it his sin or his parents' sin? There's, as they see it, it's just that. There are no other options. But Jesus says there are. But, but they're asking, was it his parents who sinned? And there's lots of examples in Scripture and in the experience of seeing the effect that the, a parent's sins or a grandparent's sins can have on children. I mean, you have abuse. Most obviously, and the tremendous trauma, and but other, but other, you know, parents who are who are drug addicted or alcoholic, and the effects that that has on on the kids physically and in other ways, and so we see all kinds of connections, and so those are realities. But but this is what I want you to see: when the disciples see this blind beggar, what they see is a theological problem. They see this little dilemma. They want Jesus to. To help them understand this theological conundrum here. Whose sin was it? His? His parents? And, and <coughs> it's one or the other. They don't consider an alternative. But Jesus says, makes very clear, verse 3, it's neither. It's neither. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. It's not saying that the man was sinless or his parents were sinless. But, but this is the point. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. He's saying there's a deeper purpose to this man's suffering. It's God's glory. It's, it's that the works of God, His power, His love might be put on full display in this moment. This is, this is His purpose. Now, we read that and we say, that's good. That, is, that sounds really good. But put yourself in the shoes of this blind man. He... he How many years has he groped around in darkness asking God, why, Lord, why me? Why do I, why can't I see but others can see? Why can't, why can't I benefit from that? Why, why am I in this darkness? 
Why, why can't I have any, any backward-looking experiences or memories to rely upon? I've never known any sight. Why, Lord? Just the frustration and the torment of being trapped in that darkness. The culture. Year after year after year. We don't know how old the man is, but it's, I'm assuming he's in, the, in his adult years. Year after year, he has, he has no idea that the Son of God would come to him and heal him. He had no idea that 2,000 years later, there would be someone preaching this (coughs) sermon in a church on a Sunday morning about this man's contribution to the revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ. He had no idea. All he knew was blindness and he didn't know why. And here Jesus is saying, there's more at work. There's a bigger story going on here. I would just say to you, who knows why we go through the things that we go through? We, we don't know. God knows, though. Now, that may make you angry to say that. And that's, that's not a right response. It should give us hope in Him. The promise of God is that He brings good out of everything that comes to us. And on us. And He even uses the worst pain and the worst kinds of suffering and the worst afflictions and the most confusing events in our lives to bring about ultimately His own glory and our good. And so, I know, and that's not to minimize the reality and the painfulness of the pain that you are enduring some of you right now, and the confusion and the uncertainty that awaits, and whether it's physical conditions or other struggles and problems and hardships in life, but I, I would just say there are, there are, don't look like the disciples as an either-or option. Just trust that God has purpose in it. So, the, so, so we're introduced to a serious problem. We're going to accelerate. Don't worry. And, and remember, this, <coughs> this blind man is a picture of all humanity without Christ. And so what we see is the problem is serious. And, and again, this is a sign. This is pointing to a deeper reality. This, this, and so what we're seeing is that the world, the world suffers from this congenital spiritual blindness. We're blind from birth. We see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, that Paul says that even if our gospel it is veiled, is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. That's all of us. When we're born into this world, we're born blind so that we cannot see. We cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Jesus Christ. That's every person. Brothers and sisters, that, all of us, if we're in Christ now, this is who we were. This is who we were. That Don't forget, and we're going to sing this at the end of the service, to sing Amazing Grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind. But now I see, and what is that attributed to? It's God's grace. That ought to stoke the fires of your heart and affections for God. And then friends, also, this is how we need to see all the people around us. This is how we need to see others. We need to see like Jesus sees. 
Those without Christ aren't simply interesting case studies. They're not theological dilemmas like the disciples saw this man. Even if they wear a facade of success and happiness, this is the reality. This is the condition of their soul. They're blind from the glory of Christ, from the light of the gospel. We need to remember that. And that leads us to the second thing. If that's the problem, and if that's how serious the problem is, then the second thing is is obvious, and it's that the need is urgent. A second point. The need is urgent. The disciples ask, how did this man get this way? His sin, his parents. Jesus answers, he just changes the whole scenario. What can we do for him right now? Verse 4. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Now that may sound strange to you, to your ears. I was trying to, what what is being communicated with this earlier in the week? I mean, I see the big, why does he saying that like this? We don't talk like that. And I think part of the confusion comes for us is that, is it's the, the contrast here between night and day is somewhat muted for us as Americans. I mean, we, we work day and night. We were driving to the, we were at the airport till 10 o'clock last night and, and that's a busy place. All these planes coming and going and that terminal's all lit up at night and all this commotion and people moving around driving home back through Riverdale and there's all this traffic and all of these businesses open, all this hustle and bustle at, you know, late in the, late on a Saturday night and, and, and this is, this is our life. Americans work around the clock. We have night shifts. We have 24 hour shifts for our firefighters and, and, and others and, <coughs> and factories keep production going 24 seven. And so, so we think like that, but this wasn't the case in Jesus' day. They, this was a sharp contrast between day and night. Day was for work and day alone. There wasn't the option. You couldn't work the fields at night. Candlelight wasn't really that helpful for doing so many of the tasks. And so, Jesus says, night is coming. Night is coming. What is He talking about? His, his day will be done. His, his departure, His crucifixion preeminently, and, and then he'll, he'll be leaving. He lived with the cross in view. It's just some six months now away from His own death. And so Jesus is acutely aware of this reality. His time on earth is, 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 is not long. This is what He's saying. When Jesus says it's finished, when He breathes His last breath on the cross, day is over. It's done. His, his work of accomplishing atonement for sin is complete. So, so Jesus is living with this sense of urgency and this impacts the way He sees this blind man. This, is, this changes how He looks at him. Not as a problem to be analyzed, but He sees as an, as an opportunity to seize for the glory of God. It's that night is coming. We must work the works of God, of Him who sent me. <coughs> and notice that, that obligation He felt. We must work the works of God. That's the same word, must. It, we talked about this way back in John chapter 4 and verse 4 where, remember, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. You're saying, no He didn't. There were lots of ways. In fact, it wasn't even the most direct way to get where He wanted to go. He didn't have to go through Samaria, but what it, what John was saying, this was a divine necessity. It was part of his mission, part of the purpose of God. It was necessary for him to go through Samaria so that he could give living water to the sinful woman and her whole village there 
and Samaria. And so here, Jesus is saying, we, we must work the works of God. Yes, the opposition is increasing. Yes, the Pharisees are plotting to kill me. Yes, my crucifixion is coming. And so we must work the works of the Father. And, and notice that little plural pronoun at the beginning of verse 4. We, that I must work the works of my Father who sent me. We must do it. Jesus and His followers, Jesus wanted His disciples to grasp that sense of urgency that He had to see what He saw, to work like He was working. And this would have blown the minds of the disciples for Him to say this. That they would be used in God's work. That's what He's saying. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 3.9 that we are God's fellow workers. You think like that. What a statement. We are fellow workers with God. And even, again, even on this side of the cross, that urgency remains for us, brothers and sisters. The need is still great. And, and so this is what should happen. This is how it was for Jesus. Our urgency and the need to get the gospel out to those that, that, that don't know Christ, our need, our, our, that sense of urgency should be directly proportionate to the seriousness of the problem in the world. And it's serious. The world is in spiritual blindness, so that should, that should provoke in us a sense of urgency. We can't be casual. There's an illustration of this. A missionary to India, Amy Carmichael, female missionary to India, was a quiet lady who was greatly used by God, though. And one of the things God used to just compel her to go to the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ was a disturbing dream that she had. And, and, so in this dream, she saw hundreds of unreached people just plunging over a cliff to their deaths. Not playing Pokemon Go, but walking over this cliff to their deaths while Christians sat and made daisy chains. That was, that was kind of, that was the dream. And God used that. It was just to give this, the need is so great. That it brought this sense of urgency in our life. I must go. I must go. Well, I would just say there remains a great harvest to be reaped. Jesus spoke of this in John 4. And there's an urgent need for workers to do the reaping. <coughs> we are those workers. I just to us, when God brings people, when God brings someone across your path, how do you respond? How do you view them? With casual interest, with curiosity, trying to see how to, what the mind of an unbeliever is like? Or do you view them with compassion? Is there this urgency in your life, this Jesus-like sense of urgency to, to see the gospel go to the unreached peoples of, around the world? To see the gospel penetrate your own neighborhood and your workplace and your school and your community? The need is urgent. And so we must point people to Jesus while there's still time. That's what we're seeing. Verse 5. She says, as long as I'm in the world, that's, that's the day that remains. I am the light of the world. He repeats this, I am from chapter 8. And then this is the key to what follows. The blind man, is the cure of this blind man, is going to be used by God to confirm Jesus' claim. He is the light of the world. That's the third, third thing we come to, third movement, is that the solution is Jesus. The problem is serious, the need is urgent, the solution is Jesus. This man who'd only known darkness his entire life is in the presence of the very light of the world. 
course, he doesn't know it, but he is. Jesus is the promised Messiah, the one the prophets foretold who said would bring recovery of sight to the blind, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. In Isaiah 35, verse 5, God, after God saying that He would come again and save His people, the prophet says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. If you remember when we studied through Matthew, or you know the account there in Matthew chapter 11, remember John the Baptist is languishing away in prison and he sends some of his disciples, of John's disciples, to Jesus. And because here he is, he's been proclaiming this Messiah, he's the forerunner of the Messiah. Is he really the one? Because here I am in, in this dungeon. And, and <coughs> so he's, there's this hesitation, this doubt, and so he sends messengers to Jesus. And they ask, are you the expected one? Or, sh- or should we be looking for someone else? Remember what Jesus' reply is, the message he sends back to John in prison? He says, go, this is Matthew 11, verse 4 and 5, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. That's all John needed. That's it. This is, this is the one. Well, Jesus, what we see here is Jesus is this, <coughs> excuse me, this long-awaited divine optometrist who is the only one who can open blind eyes. He is the unique solution. And that's exactly what He does for this blind beggar. Look verse 6. Having said these things, what are these things? I am the light of the world. Like in, in response to that statement, this is what He does. He spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then He anointed the man's eyes with the mud. And He said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So He went and washed and came back seeing. That's incredible. <laughs> and the significance of this sign isn't the method that's used. There's nothing special about the spit. Or the, the mud, the Palestinian dirt or something like that. That it has some unique medicinal qualities or something like that. That's not it at all. Why did Jesus do it this way? We have no idea. I mean, there are, there are times when Jesus just speaks a word. There are times when in the Scriptures that means are used to bring healing of people. But, but here we're, we have no idea why it's done. The, the one thing that John does seem to emphasize, and there is some symbolism here, I think, in the pool that Jesus sends him to. Salome, which John says, it means sent. Now, if you've, if you've been with us in the Gospel of John, that word is loaded. John is all about sending. The Father sent the Son into the world. That's John 8. That's, that's, that, and we've seen this throughout in the, in the discussion with the religious leaders that, that Jesus is making it clear, I am sent from the Father. So now Jesus is sending this blind man, blind beggar, to the sent pool. <coughs> and this pool was built hundreds of years before by King Hezekiah. He built a tunnel, an aqueduct, to bring water into the temple in case they were ever seized or something like that. They could last longer. And you can go there today, Hezekiah's tunnel, and walk through a portion of this tunnel. So it brought fresh water into Jerusalem. And so... So there's this, there's this pool, and, 
and and there in Jerusalem, and you think about this, so the pool is probably a few hundred yards away from where Jesus is standing, and this blind beggar is seated by this gate. And so it's not an easy journey. He's, he's, he's got to make his way to this pool without sight. Maybe people led him, but he, but he goes, he obeys. He, he, he went, and he, and he received sight. I mean, the, the, notice just the kind of the terse language here in verse 7. I mean, it's basically, he went, he washed, he saw. That's it. And he's going to repeat this when he starts to get questioned about this. I went, I washed, I saw. I mean, and so what, what, what is John saying in, in this sign? What is he pointing out? Is that Jesus Christ is God's great solution to man's deepest need. Serious problem. It's this physical miracle that's so incredible it points to this greater spiritual miracle. Giving of sight to blind people. He opens blind eyes to the gospel. As Paul says in, again in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, God shines in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We who were blinded from the light of the gospel, we couldn't see the glory of Jesus Christ. God shines in our hearts and shows it to us. This is, this is what God has done for us in Christ. And Jesus is the only one that can do it. He's the only one that could heal this blind man. He's the only one that can open our eyes. When you tell others about Jesus, you're, you're pointing them to the only one who can give them light and life. So to keep it, keep the focus on Christ. I know in, in, in evangelism and witnessing and sharing Christ with others, there, there's all kinds of rabbit trails you can run down. It's fine to talk and entertain some of their questions and, but, but, but keep the focus on Christ and the life that He offers. And pray, 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 pray for God to open their eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ. It's His work. So beg him for it. I mean, I know we have folks right now who are traveling on vacation. I can think of a few families in particular that they're going to going to people who who are still in darkness. They've heard the gospel many times. They, they they've heard the story. They know the good news of Jesus Christ, and yet they still remain in darkness. Pray for those that you know, and for our team, and for others who who have opportunities that God would open eyes. So the solution is Jesus. Fourth and finally, and then we'll come to the table, is that the change is dramatic. The change is dramatic. I mean, you think about the radical change for this man, the, the physical change that's just that's taking place here, and it's, which is picturing a spiritual reality for, for us who are in Christ. I mean, this man was immediately able to see everything with clarity. <coughs> Son... Sky, houses, trees, birds. You've never seen a bird in his life. You can't feel a bird unless it's dead, probably. Uh, so, so, so he, he just, no other senses could capture things that the eyes can capture. Some things. What's up in the sky, for instance? And so, so this whole world opens up. He just, again, stay with, close your eyes just for two or three seconds. And then open them again. And just imagine if that's the first time you're seeing. It's, it's just incredible to think. Put yourself in the shoes of this man. 
Now, in truth, again, just in studying and preparing this week, I just got kind of on a little side trail reading about blindness and people that suffer physical blindness today. And there are, there are cases where uh, with medical technologies now, they can restore sight to people who have been blind you know, all or, or most, if not all, of their lives, and uh, just depending on what's caused the blindness. And, and, but one of the things that was very interesting is that even when, bl- when blindness is, is, when sight is restored or received by these, it's not, it's not an easy process. It, it, their, their whole brain is having to recalibrate. And so they have no sense of depth perception and they, and they even, it's, just, it's, it's trying to make sense and I don't quite understand how this all works, but the brain is just trying to relearn how, how to use this sense that it's never, it's not had access to. And so it's a very frustrating process as people would describe, what the, 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 a few would describe what this was like. And, and, and honestly, there were some that were, that, that were so frustrated by it, they, they, Almost regretted the decision to to have the procedure, because at, at least early on it was so difficult. And now they can't, they don't fit in with the seeing community, and they don't fit in with the the visually impaired community. And so there were just all of these complications that brought it. But this is not the case with this man. That's what I want you to see. She's like the the man who had been paralytic for years and years and years. And he, he's healed and he doesn't, you know, have to go to rehab for months and months to learn how to walk. He walks! Well, this blind man who's been blind his whole life, he sees and he sees clearly. His vision is instant and it's excellent. It's this instantaneous healing. And it changes him. I mean, <coughs> it's changed for him, but it, it changes him so much that so many around him can't even believe it's the same guy. Verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying over and over, I mean, this is the, 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 this tense, this imperfect tense in the Greek, which means they kept saying it again and again and again. Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Others said, it is he. Or some, some said, it's he. Others said, no, but he is like him. But he kept saying over and over, I am the man. I am the man. I am the man. I am, that's me. So they said to him, and how were your eyes open? So you have these divided opinions about this guy. One would say, is this not the guy who used to sit and bag? There's this kind of question. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. But this hint of doubt. Another was certain. No, this is the one. And then another couldn't believe it. No, he just looks like him. His, his doppelganger, if you've heard that expression. He's a, he's a, he's a, he, just, he just is a lookalike. It's a strange similarity to him. But it, it can't be him. It's not him. And so people, I just say that there's a, there's a, there's a correspondence here to, to the spiritual reality that happens in the new birth. People who are newly converted, who trust in Christ, and, and they, they often go through something similar when they encounter family members and friends who maybe whom they haven't seen in some time, and they, they're around them and they're different. But their friends are skeptical. They, they, they question it. They don't trust their personal testimony on the issue either. They they doubt it. This is, you no, know, I don't believe it. But the healed man, again, back in John 9, the healed man puts an end to it all. I am the man. He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. I went, I washed, I saw. 
They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. He doesn't know much at this point. He knows, he knows the name of Jesus. Maybe somebody told him. But he's never seen Jesus. He has no clue what he looks like. He, for all he knows, he could be one of the faces in the crowd of people that's asking him. He, and, and notice, he doesn't say the incarnate Word of God in flesh, the eternal God, the Messiah did this and told me this and so I obeyed him. He just says, this man called Jesus. That's as far as it is. He's going to get down into verse 17. He's going to argue with the Pharisees that this Jesus must be a prophet. But it's later. When he does see Jesus. When Jesus finds him. He sees Jesus. And he believes in him. And he worships him. As Lord. But I just say, there's this radical change. And and physically for this man, at this point, we're going to see this Radical spiritual change at the at the end of chapter next week, um, but but at the moment a person trusts in Christ, he is a new creature. When the scales come off, he is new. The old has gone. Paul says the new has come. This radical change is new nature, and and this is this is what this is what is true of the new birth. The change is dramatic. Life is different when you see. It's, 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 it's as radical as having blind eyes open. Again, this man, this man is a picture of, of lost humanity. In our natural condition in this world, we are blinded by the sin that we inherit from Adam. From our ancestors that go back to Adam. We don't recognize the Savior even when He's near us. We've heard about Him, we've been to church, and we, we've been around Him, but we don't recognize Him for who He is. This, is. this is true of those without Christ. And this is a serious problem. Spiritual blindness is damning. And it takes a miracle to fix it. And we would never, we would never find the solution on our own. We would never come to Jesus on our own. I mean, this blind man would have never been able to find Christ. But Jesus took the initiative and to, to make the difference. And I would just say to those of us who see, who, who have had our eyes open to see the light of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ, our response isn't good for us. Because it's Him. It's His doing. It's by His doing that you are in Christ Jesus. All glory is to Him. And our hearts should be burdened. We should, we should carry that Christ-like sense of urgency to be used by God, to join in the works of God, pointing other people to the light of the world. I just read this, came across this illustration this week, and, and, and Robert Louis Stevenson, author, he, he was looking out into the dark and from his upstairs window. He was watching a man light the street lanterns one night, and his governess, we don't talk in those terms, think of Sound of Music, you know, the teacher of the kids. His governess came in, asked what he was doing, and this is what he said. He replied, I am watching a man cut holes in the darkness. That's a great word picture. And that, that's our task in a dark world. We, we, we point people, blind people, to the light of the world who can open their eyes for God's glory and cut holes in the darkness. You tell them, tell them what Christ has done. Tell them what Christ has done for you. 
He can use you to do His works before night comes when no one can work. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You that Jesus did come. We, we thank You that these words that we're reading and these, these accounts that we're, we're studying aren't fiction. They're not, it's not just the writings of men telling, making up stories, but this is, this is writing about the Son of God entering to this world in human form, walking among us. And, and performing these signs and saying these words. And we're thankful for where the story goes. That, that Jesus would go on to suffer, not as a sinner, but as the righteous sacrifice. Die in our place. Rise again from the dead on the third day. So that we could have life in Him. And so as we come to the table, God, in just a moment after singing, I pray that you would just fill our hearts with joy and gratitude for what you've done. And if there are those here who haven't had their eyes open to see the gospel of Jesus Christ, the goodness of him, and I pray that even even as we observe communion, it would be a witness to those that may be without Christ today. So use this thing, our singing, our time at the table, for our worship and for uh, the proclamation of Jesus Christ, we ask in His name. Amen.